Tonight's scripture reading is from Judges chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. After that whole generation had gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what He had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook Him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In His anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as He had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of their raiders. This is God's Word. You may be seated. Everybody have an outline? Please raise your hand if you need one, and the guys will make sure that you get one. It looks like we have one over here to the side. Him down here about the, the middle. We're going to uh, be looking at not just this passage that Billy just read for us tonight uh, in, in Judges chapter 2, but we're going to kind of get into Judges chapter 3 tonight as well. And what we'll do is uh, we'll begin with a word of prayer to ask God to bless us as we, we study His Word tonight. Father, You are the God that sees us in our distress and knows the reasons behind that distress. And yet You still bring salvation into our life. Not only the forgiveness of our sin, Father, but, but through the, the power of Your Spirit, You help us to overcome and to, to, to find the structures in life that will not fail to bring joy and peace to us through Your Son, Jesus. And this is what we're grateful for, Father, because we do live in a world that is, that is violent at times and full of anxiety, and it is unfair and unjust, and we seem at times by our own hand, by the hand of those around us, to be swept up in it. And we are thankful, Father, that You lift our head above the waters, that You plant our feet on firm ground, that You help us, Father, to have a vision of the future that, that is relevant to our present. And as we think about the life of the judges and the life of Israel during this particular time in their history, what we pray for tonight in the name of Jesus is that You will give us eyes to see and ears to hear, to learn, Father, and to change and to glorify You not only with our lips, but with our heart and with all of our actions, with all of our affections, with our ethic our value system, our worldview, Father, to bring glory to You. And so help us not just to be students of the facts, but to be disciples who hear and have changed hearts as we seek to to look and, and to be in this world at this time, in this place, like Jesus. Bless us to this end, and we pray it in our Savior's name. Amen. Everyone knows the name of Steve Jobs late co-founder and CEO of Apple. Like all humans, all of us, Jobs uh, struggled with idolatry, uh, or a form of it. 
Surprisingly, his idol was not technology, but food. Not technology, but food. His obsession with food dominated his life and relationships from early on. As a teenager, he experimented with with diets of raw food. There was one time that he went two weeks eating nothing, ironically, than just apples. The diets, based on raw foods, gave Jobs this exhilarating sense of control that extended to his surroundings, his environment, and even to his relationships and to people. And it uh, may have cost him, to a degree, his life. In October 2003, a scan turned up a certain kind of a cell cancer, a rare version of a pancreatic cancer that was slow-growing and consequently almost always curable with prompt surgery. But Job's obsession with food as a method of control inserted itself like a wedge between Job's and, and a cure. His biographer, Isaacson, writes, Job's decided not to have surgery to remove the tumor, which was the only accepted medical approach. He said, I really don't want them to open up my body, so I tried to see if a few other things would work. He told me years later with a hint of regret. Specifically, he kept a strict vegan diet with large quantities of fresh carrots and fruit juices for nine months as his friends and family pleaded with him to have the surgery Jobs refused. End of quote. Not until July of the next year did he consent to remove a part of his pancreas, but by that time it was discovered that the cancer had spread and it eventually took his life. Uh, a fellow, uh, he's a president of a university now, but a, a philosopher, a religious philosopher by the name of Cornelius Plantiga in a book entitled The Way It's Not Supposed to Be writes about human pride and hubris that hubris is the first and the most popular form of idolatry. But all forms of idolatry involve us deeply in folly. All idolatry is not only treacherous, but also futile. Human desire, deep and restless and seemingly unfulfillable, keeps stuffing itself with infinite goods, but these cannot satisfy. If we try to fill our hearts with anything besides the God of the universe, we find that we are overfed, but undernourished. And we find that day by day, week by week, year after year, we are thinning down to a mere outline of a human being. Plantinga writes earlier in the book that the danger of of idols is that of the danger of third parties being introduced into relationships that are exclusive, like a marriage, leading to dividing loyalties, and the dividing loyalties leading to destroyed relationships and destroyed people. He he says earlier in the book, another quote, the danger of third parties in these cases is that they are always wedge-shaped. Which brings us uh, tonight to the second and and third chapters of Judges and the problem of the wedge-shaped intruders into the life of God's people, Israel. The question that we're going to begin with tonight is this. What would a truly idolatrous people or idolatrous generation look like? In Judges chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, there is a two-pronged process. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what He had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served the Baals. 
the first thing that we see in terms of, of this idolatry making itself known and the third party intruding itself as a wedge in the relationship between Israel and God is that the transcendence of God is lost. Secularism is, is a word that we're familiar with, uh, but sometimes it's, it's kind of a, a squishy term when it, when it comes to trying to identify it in our own lives. But secularism can be identified by the loss of transcendence, that there's nothing beyond us. There's nothing higher than humans in a culture. Now, when we think about this in terms of Israel, it sounds extremely weird that a nation that is created by God and empowered by God and given identity by God's presence, like Israel, can quickly come to the point where they don't know God and they don't recognize in their own lives and in their own history and in their future a vision that, that entails the things that God has done for Israel. That's verse 10. Now, I don't think that it necessarily means that the stories of the Exodus or the parting of the Red Sea or the crossing of the Jordan River or the walls of Jericho falling down were not known to these people. But that half-hearted devotion that we looked at two weeks ago became a convenient fact. I mean, all of, these, all of these things that had happened in their history, they were just convenient facts, but they were not life-altering truths. The people were not engaging with God in a vital way. And, and we, I think we can get that. When we look at Israel, I mean, we can make the, the, the requisite uh, applications to our own life. I mean, we get what happens when you half-heartedly look in faith towards God and try to make that God who is enormous and magnificent and gigantic and compassionate and loving and grace if we approach Him in a half-hearted way, there's not going to be the, the, the vital, dynamic, intimate relationship there. I mean, think of worship on the first day of the week when we come together as, as the children of God in that special moment where we look each other in the eye and we identify each other as brother and sister and not brother and sister by, by our blood, but brother and sister by the blood of Jesus. We worship on the first day of the week and it becomes distorted when we're not worshiping every day of the week. The sign of that is when our times of worship together are more about convenience and entertainment than the expressions of gratitude for God's providence and rejoicing in His presence every day. The thinking is, I'm not engaged in worship because God is magnificent, but because it's not very gripping and compelling. We're bored there in the pews. We've lost that transcendence. And when we come together and look each other in the eye and we're brothers and sisters because of the blood of Jesus and we're lifting up our voices and recognizing that God is the supreme value of the universe is lost because it becomes just an hour of a very, very long week. And the, 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 the vital engagement with God is not happening on a daily basis. This, this pagan worldview that Israel was encountering was accepting very much the existence of God. You read the Old Testament, they were not trying to say that there is not a God in Israel, that there's not a, 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 a deity that Israel recognizes. What they would not accept is the exclusive sovereignty of God. Their, their worldview was that gods were a part of niches and segments of your life. 
And to have one God that was completely sovereign over everything because He was the Creator of everything. And that He exclusively was the King of life was not accepted. And Israel began to absorb that worldview. And this is why they began to fail epically in taking the land. So Israel, the transcendence of God is beginning to be lost. They, they didn't know God. They didn't, the, 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 the stories of God's intersections in Israel's history were not a vital part of the way that they viewed the world. And then when that transcendence of God is beginning to be lost, the problem of idols begins to surface and to appear and to make itself known. The heart of the problems of idols is inserted into the text. The evil is described as idolatry. Verse 11, they forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. The Baals and the Ashtaroths began to clamor for the loyalties of the people of Israel, leading to the disturbing mess that became Israel, the people of God. Now remember what it is that Plantica said about idols. They're wedge-shaped. Think about it in terms of a marriage relationship. One of the reasons that idolatry is called a, a, a adultery is that it's that third party that wedges, its, wedges itself between two people that are exclusively related and committed to each other in promises and vows and covenant. Adultery is what happens when a third party enters that exclusive relationship. And there's more happening in adultery than just the disloyalty and the ingratitude. That divided love destroys everyone from the spouse to the kids and especially the adulterer. Those split loyalties begin to crack the foundations of life and the walls begin to crumble and to fall down all around you. The problem of idols is that they just don't ruin everyone else's life, but they ruin your life as well. Life begins to disintegrate. And Judges has a rather graphic way of describing the worship of idols. When you drop down in chapter 2 to verse 17... We read, yet they would not listen to their judges, but what? Prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Prostitution is, is what the Bible calls ignoring the love of God in order to worship the idols. It's graphic. It's graphic. Think about the nature of prostitution for a second. It's Prostitution is about a life that is in a downward spiral, never in an upward ascent. Regardless of how one tries to make the facade beautiful, the inner distortion comes out. It cannot be hidden. There's the giving of pleasure, but the never receiving of love. The false intimacy distorts and disorients the person because the person is used and not loved. And that's how God sees idolatry. In, in a marital relationship, selfless, intimate love is given and received. But this is not the relationship that Israel has with God. There is prostitution involved with the idols. And so spiritually, Israel has begun to, to go to the prostitute and the possibilities of destruction for Israel are huge. You see... When a nation is, 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 is beginning to lose that sense of transcendence, that there is something bigger and greater and deeper and more profound than just human beings, and the recognition that that God is the one that calls us into relationship with Himself, there, there's more than just 
uh, a diminishment of attendance at church. There's more than just uh, uh, the, the rise of, 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 of crime in a culture. What happens is that people begin to disintegrate. And that's what's happening in Israel. And we see this in this deadening cycle. Now, the text that we're looking at tonight illustrates the first of some repeated cycles that are found in Judges because of this divided heart with God. The first part of this is what we'll call rebellion. In verse 12 of Judges chapter 2, they are forsaking the Lord. They are no longer in a relationship uh, that is based on covenant and love and grace and compassion of God calling them out of inescapable slavery and bringing them to Mount Sinai and forming them into a nation and showing His forgiveness and, and His greatness and His glory and His holiness to them. They have rebelled against that and they are beginning to go elsewhere. And like any lover, spouse that's jilted, the Lord becomes angry. There's the Lord's anger uh, in verses 12 and 13. They arouse because they are forsaking God. They arouse the Lord's anger because they have forsaken Him. And then the third part of this is that there begins to be this oppression. The enemies oppress. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as He had sworn to them. And they were in great distress. All of a sudden, the life that looks like it's pretty wonderful because they've gone off in this direction, not in a direction that's taking them to God, but taking them in a direction away from God, that begins to be that disintegrating, confusing, disoriented life. It becomes an oppressive life as you become enslaved to that idol. And there comes this point where the people come to their senses and there is repentance. We go over to Judges chapter 3 and verse 9. They cried out to the Lord. And because of the nature of God, God raises up a Savior and a liberator and a peace restorer to the hearts and, and, and the minds and the souls of the people. Raises up a judge. And in Judges chapter 2, verse 16, the Lord raises up judges who save them out of the hands of these raiders. But the sad thing is that the cycle repeats. Verse 17, yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshiped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. If there was ever irony in Scripture, it's here. Israel chooses to listen to and to serve other gods, and they think that this is going to be liberating because they're getting out from under God. But what happens is they become enslaved to whatever it is that they follow. The thorns and, and the thistles that are talked about in the Genesis 3 curse, the cause of sin, the thorns and the thistles are part of the, the curse of, 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 uh, of, of creation. Those thorns and thistles begin to dig in deeper and deeper and deeper as the cycle goes on and on and on and goes darker and darker and darker. Israel is in a trend downward. One of the things that, that Barry says that has, uh, Newton has said that has stuck with me is he talks about, you know, as long as you don't open a door to your heart to something out there that is ungodly, there is a part of your life that's sort of fenced off from that. But as soon as you open the door up to that, it's hard to get that door closed. And that is what has happened to Israel. The door has opened. They have opened the door to their heart. They've opened the door to something that should, should, they should never be exposed to. 
and it's going to be hard to shut again. Now, there, there are just a couple of lessons here that we want to close with. The first is that the transmission of faith is incredibly essential. These are, are, are people who at some point know about God intellectually, but they don't know God intimately. And these are also, a, a people have been instructed in sort of the, the way that that faith is to be transmitted from generation to generation to generation. The key core text, the critical text, is Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is singular in His existence. And because of that interaction with that God that created us and created everything and has, has brought us into His presence through His grace, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your what? Don't just teach them. Impress them. Impress these on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And then we drop down to verse 20. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws of the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt. But the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our, Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. Read that part again. The Lord commanded us to, be, to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God, so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, as He has commanded us, this will be our righteousness. What Moses is transmitting to the people from God is, is that there's no substitute when, when your life is being viewed by anybody, but especially your children. There is nothing more important, there's nothing that is more essential to faith being transmitted than to see your children love God. But not to love God in, in sort of this mechanical sense. That I'm showing love because I'm... I'm I'm, I'm doing this and doing that and not doing this and not doing that. But to love God with, with all that you are. To, to love God with your heart. And to love God with your soul at the very core of your being. There is a love that is, that is central to your being. That is a love of God. And with all of your strength. I mean... It, we, we guys, I, you know, I don't want to talk to... I'm not a wife, and, and, and so, but I'm a husband, and so we know what this means, guys, right? I mean, there's a sense in which we might be able to communicate to our wives that we love them because we come home every night. Or because we make sure that there's money in the bank. Or we make sure that we mechanically say the words at least once a day, I love you. 
But it's a different kind of a love that is expressed to our spouses when it's a love that is from our heart. It's a love that comes from our emotional life. It's visceral. It's, it's something that we feel that when we're in the presence of that person, there's something that's different than just intellect. There's something emotional going on when we see that. And it's, it's the same with our soul. I mean, to love uh, your spouse on the surface is, is not to be completely given to that person, to that spouse, to that wife. But when you love from the core of your being, that means you have allowed that person to come into the most inner holy place of your life. And, and it's, 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 a, it's a, a way that that love is expressed that, that is communicated in ways differently than just the, the, the words, the mechanical words, I love you. And all of your energies. I mean, all of your energies is given to expressing that, whether it be in the hugs and, 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 and the kisses and, and, and the affection and, and, and the work that you do with, with that spouse to, to, to make that home. All of your strength, all of your energies are given in that direction. That's what Moses is telling the people that love for God. That's the primary thing, the priority, the preeminent thing in life is to be all about. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. And it's also about bringing that God into everyday reality. It's, it's when you're sitting down and you're walking in the road and when you're lying down and you're getting up. It's when you're doing your work. It's when you're doing your rest. It's everything that your life entails. There is God at the very center of it. And then when we drop down to verses 20 and 25, you're telling the story. The, the story in Deuteronomy, one of the things that, that I think we miss is that when, when Moses is telling the people that this is what you say, he's not telling them to say something about a, a historical fact that happened way, way, way in the past. He's talking about something that is just maybe decades removed from some of them. And basically what he's saying is you tell your testimony or your witness to how God has changed your life by the way that He intersected in the course of your history. There's a difference, my friends, in, in telling your children that we are saved by, by the cross of Jesus. There is a difference in saying that as a fact, which is true. It happened 2,000 years ago. It happened in a land thousands of miles away, but it was the cross and it was the pivot point on all of history. And that is true and that is important, but there's something different when you say, you know, my life was rotten and nasty and I could see when I was honest with myself that my life was going down the tubes. And all of a sudden, the truth that the Creator and that there is a Creator loves me and that in love... His Son took on my sin. And that way, I, I'm not paying the penalty for my sin and judgment and God's judgment and God's wrath. But because of His love for me, I've come out from under that. And when I got that, I mean, it went all the way down on the inside of me. went into my soul, into my core. That changed me. And that's why I am the person that I am today. That's different from saying 2,000 years ago, a cross. What Moses is telling the people is you tell about how God has changed the course of your life. 
And you relate that story of your faith and you continually tell that story and you bring God into the reality of your life. The transmission of faith is essential. But then number two, you know what false gods lurk around your heart. You have to know what false gods lurk around your heart. Idols for us in the Western world, in the modern world, the 21st century, they're not always little statues that are promising fertility. You have to ask a couple of questions. What is it that really gives me my identity? If this was taken away from me, I would lose my identity. Is it if you were to lose your job? That would be the thing that emotionally you would drop to the ground in a fetal position over. What is it that gives me my identity that if it was taken away, I would, I would lose it. I would, I would melt. I would be destroyed. It's a relationship. It's, it's, it's a status. What is it that gives you your identity? What if Christianity, your faith, was taken from you? A second question is not only what gives me my identity, what gives me my security? What is it that makes me feel safe? That if I have this taken away from me, I lose this, I no longer feel safe. I feel vulnerable. I don't feel like I'm in control. The danger for us is the subtlety of the temptation to continue as good church members, feeling that nothing is wrong, not becoming atheists, but asking God to coexist with the idols in our heart. And the last thing is, and there, there are a lot more, but we'll just look at three tonight. How about developing a thankful heart? One of the things I think is happening during this period of time in Israel's history is that uh, they don't know God. And they don't know the things that, that God has done for them. And when you don't know God in, in, in a way that, that draws you into Him and you don't know the, the acts and the intersections of, of His power in your life, the salvations that have come, the saving moments from enemies, the providing of food, all of these things, you know what really happens? You stop worshiping. You stop rejoicing. You stop giving thanks. That's that loss of transcendence. You stop thinking about you know, what your life would be like if God wasn't in control of it. And if God wasn't taking care of you. And God wasn't directing your steps. And, and, and building your life in the proper kinds of structures. You stop giving thanks. You stop rejoicing. You stop lifting your voice up and saying, I recognize the goodness of God in this or that or all of these things. One of the things that Paul wanted to make sure that he got across to the church in Thessalonica, it doesn't matter what your circumstances are. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what's happening to you on the outside. You give thanks in all circumstances. The place to begin that is, is seeing Jesus as our Savior and our Liberator and our Peace Restorer. He's the one that we need as a Savior. I mean, when you think about it, I mean, you can recognize. Could you imagine how dark and futile your life might become if you recognize that, you know, whenever you try to go forward, you fail and you go backwards two steps and you're, you're, you recognize that there's something destructive in your thought life and your 
heart certainly is not pure. And every time you try to move forward, it's like going into a brick wall. And you realize that it's your own doing. It's your own power. It's your own misguidance. It's your own misthinking on things. But then there's not a way out from that. That because there's not a way out from that, that your life is just going to be completely futile and vain and meaningless and hopeless. But then we think about how God looks down and sees all of us in the same way that He saw Israel. And He sends the Savior that we need. And not only is He a Savior, but He's a liberator. He liberates us from the sin that is killing us. And He is the one who restores peace between us and God. Romans chapter 5. Maybe tonight uh, you would like to get rid of those idols and you'd like to acknowledge that God is your Creator and that His Son, Jesus, is your Savior. And what you would like to do tonight is to confess that Jesus is your Lord and your Savior. Because you believe that He is that Son. You believe that He is that that liberator from from sin. He is the one that's going to reestablish peace between you and God in such a way that your life will never, ever, ever be the same. And you decide to go in the direction of God and you confess that God is the direction that you want to go in and you are baptized in participating in that death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You You are brought up into newness of life. Not the same old same old, same old. Not the same old life, but a life where there's forgiveness and a life where God has invested His Spirit in you in order to bring those changes about so that love and peace and gentleness and kindness and joy and faithfulness can blossom in your life as you flourish as a disciple of Jesus. And He calls you into His human project and not not only transforming and, and, and changing your life, but He's using you in significant ways to be light and darkness. That describes you tonight. Then we're going to ask you to to come forward and to talk to our shepherds as Jeff leads us in a song. Let's stand and praise God together.